This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. This is a book in the New Testament toward the end of the New Testament. Toward the end of the New Testament. It's a very small book, just a page and a half, page and a third in my Bible. This is a very short book. Um, so we're going to be spending some time there. If you, uh, let me mention, by the way, that if you were intending to participate in the Generations Offering but weren't prepared today, you can certainly mail that in, drop that off at the office, give it in next week, which, you know, however you choose. just want to let you know that as well in case you weren't ready today. No problem on that. Well, we're going to go to look at the book of Titus. This will take us up to Christmas this year. So this is how we're going to finish the year and then uh, come to Christmas. And it's going to be very different than where we've been because we've spent six weeks um, on a very visionary series uh, for the life of our church. And uh, now we're going to do a very careful study uh, of a New Testament letter, the book of Titus. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to build some overview of the book. We're going to look at four verses, but I'm primarily going to be sort of building an overview of what's the book about and uh, draw some conclusions and some application for us here today. Um, and uh, just really looking forward to this. I think God's got some it's got some things to speak to us, as always, from this book. So Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word that You always speak to us through your word, Lord, that you have things to communicate to us, even in a letter's greeting. We thank you for that, that there's not a word that is not inspired. And we thank you that your holy word is God-breathed and it speaks to us. You speak to us through it, Lord. And so I pray today we'd hear your voice in this text. We pray that you would speak to us in a very real way. God, we pray that we would grasp kind of the foundation of this book going forward. And we pray in the next number of weeks as we look at the book of Titus that you would speak to us as a church, Lord, that you would reveal your grace to us in Christ in a fresh way and that you would show us what it means to live a godly life empowered by your grace. So God, speak to us today. Lord, give me strength. I pray you'd fill me with the Spirit and enable me to communicate your word in a way that would serve and edify uh, the folks gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, I'm going to be giving some overview. I hope this won't just feel like a Bible study lesson, uh, but it'll feel like a sermon. Uh, but I want to give some, some background to the book. This is, a, uh, this is a, one of the books that is called a pastoral epistle, along with First and Second Timothy. And they get that name because Paul is writing uh, to a younger person, and he is uh, to Timothy and First and Second Timothy to Titus here, and he is instructing them uh, with some pastoral instruction about leadership in his church. Each of these guys have some responsibilities for a region of churches as well. What this particular Titus is a whole island of churches that he is serving at this point. Um, you'll notice that in verse 5, we get a little bit of the purpose of the letter. Verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul has evidently been in Crete with Titus, and he's left him there, um, and he's left him with a specific responsibility. Now, in the book of Acts, we get no mention of Titus 
and Paul going to Crete. So scholars think that probably this occurred, uh, that they went to Crete after Acts 28. I mean, this would be the real Acts 29 visit, I suppose. After Acts 28, uh, when Paul is under house arrest, he's released from there. Probably what happened then was that Paul went with Titus and maybe Timothy to Crete, and then Paul and Timothy may have moved on and left Titus on this island of Crete. And he is now writing him from an undisclosed location, and he is communicating to him uh, about how to finish up the work which they began. So when he says, I left you in Crete, and now he's telling him, verse 5, to appoint elders, what we can infer from that is that they went to Crete and did some evangelism, and as they evangelized the, uh, the uh, island... It's an island in the Mediterranean Sea that as they evangelized the island, people came to Christ. And as people came to Christ, they gathered together in churches. And now there is a need for someone to exercise servant leadership in those churches. And so the order of the day is to, to, to put into order what remains uh, by appointing elders. So this is his purpose, what he is doing here. Notice that, that he evangelizes uh, the island, that there is gospel uh, mission, gospel ministry going forth, and then people come together, and now they need pastoral care, pastoral oversight. And there's something very important to notice about mission here, that whenever Paul, throughout the book of Acts, and in this case as well, whenever he went into a city and preached the gospel, it was always for the purpose of seeing people come to Christ and seeing churches formed. Churches were planted. When we think of mission, when we think of outreach mission, when we think of foreign mission, when we think of any kind of missionary activity... Our goal should ultimately be the same goal that Paul has here, that the gospel be preached, that people come to Christ, and that those new believers then be assembled together in a new church to live out their lives together. And in this case, under the, or in all cases, under the leadership of overseers or shepherds or pastors or elders, all the same thing. So that's what he is talking about here. He's left him with this responsibility. Now, here's what happens as we go through this letter. What we're going to find is, as almost always happens, some false teachers have emerged. Uh, whenever the gospel goes forth, when other people meet Christ, whenever churches are planted, and even in existing churches, there will always be opposition to the gospel. And that opposition is usually divisive in nature. It divides God's people from one another, from their leaders, it's just divisive, and so in this book, he's particularly going to address uh, divisive people in the third chapter, but there are these false teachers that are rising up, and so what Paul is going to do is he's going to have uh, Titus appoint elders, that's the next passage, and he's going to have these elders ultimately refute these false teachers. So he's saying, put into leadership true teachers who will teach the Bible, put into leadership true people, true, true teachers who not only believe the message, but are living the message. That's what he's going to talk about, their character. What are these people supposed to be like? In contrast to these false teachers who live a life that doesn't reflect the gospel. So Paul is concerned about sound living among leaders and among people, but he is, uh, he's, and sound teaching. He's concerned about sound doctrine, which he will talk about in this book, and he's concerned about sound living as well. So he's going to say that you will know God's teachers not only by what they say, but by how they live. So it's important that he gets the right people in place to lead to refute the false teachers. So that's the context of what's going on. That with, that's kind of what's happening in this whole first chapter that Paul writes to Titus. Now, godliness is not just a concern for leaders. Godliness is a concern for everyone, and so Paul is going to talk a lot about godly living in this little book. This book is short, it's to the point, Paul doesn't use a lot of detailed language or take a lot of, you know, sort of rabbit trails in any way, kind of talk about this and talk about that. It is very short and it is very pointed. If you're the kind of person that you're like bottom line, you know, when somebody's sharing a story with you, you're going, okay, what's the point? 
If you're that person, you're going to love the book of Titus because he's going to give you the point from the very beginning. He's going to repeat it and he's going to give it to you quickly and you can probably sit down and read the whole book in about five minutes. And so he's going to bottom line it for you throughout. And he's bottom lining it by helping Timothy to address these fledgling churches. He he said he's to appoint elders in every town, verse 5. So there's a gathering in each of the towns on the island of Crete and he is going to be addressing them and emphasizing that the good news of Jesus Christ, which they have believed, that it's going to lead into a different life. That when you receive the good news of Jesus, when you believe in Him as your Savior, when you receive that good news, it's going to lead into a new life. It's news that leads into a new life. And He's going to show that throughout the book. So in chapter 1, He's going to talk about uh, how, what kind of leaders reflect that new life. In chapter 2, He's going to talk about how that new life is lived out among men. How that new life is lived out among women. He's going to give some gender-specific application. How that new life is lived out among slaves. He's even going to address them in chapter 2. How this In chapter 3, he's going to talk about how this new life is lived out in society. How it's to be lived out in society with our civic responsibilities. He's also going to talk about uh, uh, doing good works for the glory of God. He's going to tell the church to avoid controversies. This is a new church, but it didn't take long at all. They don't even have elders. It's brand new. They don't even have pastors. It's brand new, but it did not take long for there to be controversies. And he's going to tell people to avoid arguments, avoid divisive wranglings, avoid these sort of petty discussions that you're getting into that aren't going anywhere. Instead, live a godly life is what he's going to call them to. He's also concerned that these good works be lived out as a witness to those who don't know Jesus Christ. He's wanting the church to be different than the culture and so stand out as a witness to those who don't know the Lord. And he's living in the midst, Titus is for the time he's here, he's living in the midst of a very immoral culture. I mean, look at, uh, look at verse 12 of chapter 1. One of the Cretans, that's who he's writing to, the people of Crete. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, that's what their own people say about themselves. So this is Crete. You, get, you go to the, the Bureau of Tourism at Crete, it says, visit Crete. We are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I don't know the fact that their prophet says this. Is this something they're proud of? I don't know. But they're trying to plant a church and trying to establish a church among liars, evil beasts, and, uh, and glut- lazy gluttons. People that don't work and they just give in to their self-indulgent appetites. They don't tell the truth. They're evil They're, I I don't know, just sort of uncouth and gross and uh, sort of inappropriate kind of people. And he's starting a church there. Wow. Some people would say it's it's harder to have a church in the Bible Belt than that environment. And in some ways I think they're true. At least everything's very black and white. It's easy to stand out in Crete. Right? It's easy to stand out. I mean, I read that. I think, man, if you just don't burp in public, you stand out in Crete. If, if, you, don't just, if you don't smell, if you don't swear all the time, uh, if you bathe, you stand out in Crete. So I'm not sure it's that hard to be a witness among these evil beasts. Um, but that is where they are. The heart of the whole letter is this, that grace produces godliness in the believer. Grace produces godliness. And if we aren't concerned with godliness, then we likely haven't experienced grace. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is really the heart of the whole book. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives 
in the present age. Do you see what he's saying? Grace has come to us so that we live godly lives in the present age. Grace has come to us, transforming us and building us as a people together so that in this present age, for Crete, among people who just wore their evil on their sleeve, or for people in Frisco and surrounding areas who, who hide their evil and put makeup over their evil and uh, you know look really nice and together in the midst of their evil, for the, in, in those circumstances, we are called... Grace calls us, it appears to us, it brings salvation to us in Jesus so that we may live godly lives in the present age. That is his concern. And he's going to start with getting upright godly leaders in the church. We'll look at that next week. Listen, if we're going to make disciples who make disciples, we must be clear on this point. That it's not just praying a prayer and it's not just intellectually believing in Jesus When we truly encounter Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us and will make us different people. And that will show up in our lives. Okay, let's jump. That's a background of the book. Let's jump into the text itself a bit here. And I'm just going to walk through this. This is a sentence. These first four verses is a sentence in Greek. It's super complex. It's a very complex sentence. And as we read it, if you're thinking, where is he going with this? I'm going to break it out, uh, if not word by word, close to that and just try to give an emphasis on what he's talking about. First of all, we're going to talk about Paul and his identity, and then very briefly we're going to talk about Titus, and and then we'll close talking about grace. First of all, Paul and his identity. Look what he says, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He begins the letter identifying himself as a servant. This is Paul's identity. This is how he views himself. He's at the end of his ministry when this book is written. It's one of the last few books he wrote. So he's at the end of his ministry. He's at the end of his life. He's lived a, a, quite a life with a lot of experiences. And he comes to the end of his life and he is identifying himself as a servant of God. You'll note in the, in the footnote there that the same word is used for slave. He is a slave of God. Sometimes the ESV will translate it servant, sometimes slave, based on the context. When we think of slave, we think of um, the horrendous period in our own history uh, where humans were captured against their will and made uh, slaves owned by others, a great evil that we remember, and, and, or we think about modern-day slavery uh, in the sex trade, that sort of stuff. Uh, In Paul's day, you you certainly had different kinds of slavery, but the reason sometimes it says servant is because sometimes it's a different kind of slavery. Someone voluntarily, willingly became a servant to someone. They were a slave to them. They gave up their rights, but sometimes they did so willingly because they couldn't pay debts and it was a way to cover their debts and then they'd be released. Um, actually, sometimes as a slave in this in this world, you actually could accumulate property and and buy out buy, buy out the the slavery agreement or whatever. So th- there's different types of uh, servitude um, in the Bible, and so he uses the words translated servant here, but it means slave. What, what's what's in common in both of these structures is that a person has lost their rights. A person is bought and owned by someone else. And in this case, Paul is saying, I've been bought and I am owned by God. I have given up or lost my personal freedoms and I live every day in service to someone else. That's what's common, whether it's bond servant, servant, slave. What's common is that Paul is saying, I am owned by someone else. And I live my life in the service at His command according to His will. I live every day in service to another. That is Paul's designation of himself. And that's really the calling of every Christian, is a servant of God. We frequently think servant, okay, that's the guy that's stacking chairs at the end of the worship service. And that guy is a servant. That is a servant. We need chairs stacked or whatever it is. So that is serving. But he's talking about something much broader than working in the nursery today, much broader than stacking chairs. He's talking about a life that is defined, designated a servant of God. So for the servant, it means that God God influences, is over, is in authority all of our lives. It's not just what I do on Sunday morning. 
But the servant of God is expressing his servanthood, his servitude to God on the job. Expressing our servanthood to God uh, in whatever we do as, as, as the way we love our spouse. If you're married, the way we love our spouse, we love our spouse as a servant of God. For the glory of God, the way we spend our money and invest our finances, the way we use our time, the way we think, what we give ourselves to, that we are fundamentally those who have been bought with a precious price, the blood of Jesus. And now this gracious, merciful, glorious, generous King that we sang about this morning, He owns us. And we live in fellowship and in relationship with Him. And we live lives at His direction. So it's not that we give him an hour and a half on Sunday morning and then do our deal through the week and then come back and give him another hour and a half next week, maybe two hours for community group this week. No, we live a lives as servant of God. It's not just when we're doing something overtly spiritual. When we wake up in the morning and read our Bible, that's when I'm serving God. No, we're to be serving God, living according to his word at all times. And that's how Paul defines himself. I am one in service to God, owned, bought by him. So again, when he uses that word, it communicates. He's a slave of God. He's a servant of God. It's way more for us. It's stacking chairs for him. It's a designation that's a fundamental identity that steers his life. Servant of God. He also acts in another person's authority. A servant or a slave acted in the owner's authority, and that translates into what he says next, or, or flows into what he says next. He says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's identifying himself as an apostle of Christ like the twelve, those who were commissioned by Christ, those who saw the risen Lord, those who were used to perform miracles for God to authenticate themselves as messengers. While there may have been others who had apostolic types of roles or functions or carried on, Titus is perhaps carrying on an apostolic ministry in Paul's, uh, under Paul's authority here. So there may have been others that were connected, but there really in the Bible is this unique group of twelve And Paul is among them, in a sense, when he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's establishing the church. He's bringing the gospel to Gentiles. He's writing scripture. He's an an authoritative messenger. So Paul gives his office, his identity. He's a servant of God. No matter what he's doing, he's serving. His office, he's a divinely commissioned messenger. That's who he is. So he tells us what his role is, what his office is, what his function is. And then he defines his apostleship. He's going to do this. He's going to describe it with two phrases. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, number one, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And secondly, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. So those two, I know this is dense, it's very densely written, but those are the two prepositional phrases that define his apostleship. I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I'm an apostle in hope of eternal life. First, First of all, he is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That is the goal of his apostleship. If you were to say, Paul, Paul, what is the goal what does it mean to be an apostle? What, is your, what are you trying to accomplish? What's your purpose statement? Why, are you, why does God have apostles? What are they doing? What are you doing? Well, here's what he's doing. He's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. It means for the purpose of the faith of God's elect. Or it could, some have translated, to bring about the faith of God's elect. Paul, what are you doing? What is your purpose as an apostle? My goal is is to act in a way to bring about the faith, to support the faith, to lead to faith for the purpose of faith of God's elect. He is acting to bring about people's faith. He's he's serving so that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is his role. And he does that for God's elect, those whom God has chosen. So God has chosen people... Paul is used by God to bring faith to those chosen people, so that those chosen people come to faith. Last, uh, or a few weeks ago, we talked about First uh, Peter, and we saw a passage that said that the church, we are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. So we are chosen by God. He owns us. We are his people. If you're a Christian here today, you're a believer, you're part of God's elect. When he refers to the elect, that's you. That's the church. In the Old Testament, it's Israel. They're the God's chosen people, people of God. Under the New Covenant, it's the church, Jew and Gentile alike. We are the elect. And Paul is reaching these people, taking the gospel. He's serving for the faith of the elect. The elect. Now, this is a very confident approach to mission Paul has. I'm sent to, for the faith, for the purpose of the faith, for bringing to faith God's elect. There are people that are God's people, and I'm going to encounter them with the gospel, and they're going to join God's people. See, some people think that, well, if God has a chosen people, you know, if this idea of election is true, then why wouldn't we just say, well, God's going to save whom he's going to save. God's chosen people, he's going to do what he's going to do. That would be so foreign to the Apostle Paul. It would be so foreign. Paul is not sitting around in laziness waiting for God to save his elect. Paul, Paul, rather, is almost daily taking risks to evangelize. Paul is risking his life to evangelize. He doesn't think, well, God's just going to save whom he's going to save. He said, I am sent to bring faith for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Think about Paul's life. He was beaten multiple times. He was stoned and left for dead. That means people pelt him with large rocks until he falls over and appears dead, unconscious, whatever, and they leave thinking the guy's dead. And God gets him up. Paul is shipwrecked at one point. He spends a night and a day out at sea. Paul gets snake bit one time in the service to take the gospel forth. He gets bitten by a snake. I mean, this guy, he went hungry. He was imprisoned on more than one occasion. He was despised by people that he brought the gospel to that turned on him. He would bring the gospel to people and then be slandered, which could be happening here, happened in Corinth. So he would bring the gospel, and then after he leaves, people would say all these bad things about him. Oh yeah, people would start believing it. And then they'd start despising Paul, questioning Paul, doubting Paul criticizing Paul. He's just there telling people the good news and he's making enemies in the midst of it all. He went without food to bring the gospel to people. He was on the run at various times, having to sneak out of towns. One time he's like lowered over the city wall in a basket so they can sneak out of town because they're going to get him. You, you kidding me? Did Paul sit around and think, oh, well, God's going to save whom he's going to save? No, God, Paul believed that he was sent for the faith of the elect, that he would bring the gospel and that people would willingly choose Jesus Christ and that those people were chosen ahead of time by God. That God would choose people who would freely choose him by the power of the gospel. That's what Paul believed. There's a mystery there in terms of how that all fits together. But we dare not think that the reality is that because people are elect, God's going to save whom he's going to save, and he's not going to use us. God uses the preaching of the gospel to reach people, and that was Paul's goal for the sake of the faith of God's elect to take the gospel. And that is our goal as well. I mean, I want to have this kind of perspective with my life and with our church's life, that God is working on people all around us, where people would go in, Paul would bring the gospel, and he would touch people's hearts. He would open their hearts, like Lydia, for instance. Read about her. God opened her heart as she was hearing the gospel. That there are people God is drawing. There's people God is softening their hearts right now. They may be in your family, and you don't even know it. They may be your neighbor, you don't even know it. They may be your coworker who looks like everything's okay, but his life is crumbling. She's going through a devastating divorce and hasn't told anybody at the office. There are people who look like they have it all together, and God is going to work in their... They don't even see their need for God. Paul himself is going to kill Christians. He is on his way to destroying the church, and God arrests his heart and gives him faith in Christ. So we don't know what God's going to do. That's why we share the gospel indiscriminately, broadly, 
with whomever we can and see God work. So that's Paul. Here's another part of his goal. His goal is not only to serve for the sake of the God's elect, but for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So he brings good news to people, and when they believe, as they believe, he equips them with the knowledge of the truth. And you're reading that right now. We're reading his knowledge that he gave of the truth. So he gives the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The NIV translates that which leads to godliness. So there's a slight difference. The NIV would be saying, the translators think that the word means this, that Paul brings the gospel, people, the elect believe the gospel, that he then serves for their knowledge so they learn more about God and his word, and that that leads to godliness. That knowledge leads to godliness. The, the, the ESV takes a different sense. It says it accords with godliness. That is, it's in agreement with godly living. So the knowledge that Paul is teaching is in agreement with godly living. Now, which is it? Well, I think they're both the same thing. I mean, ultimately, well, they're not exactly the same, but they make generally the same point. That the grace of God, the message of grace, leads to godly living. That's the point. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle so that people receive the gospel, they believe the gospel, I give them knowledge about God and the gospel, and that knowledge is in accord with godliness, or it leads to godliness. That knowledge is applied, it is believed and applied in godly living. What His point is this, that when you believe the gospel, you become a new person and your life will change. Your interests will change. Your desires will change. Your convictions will change. Things that did not even affect you before now affect your heart. The holiness of God brings you conviction, compassion for others that you did not have before because the heart of Christ is in you by the Spirit. A desire to know God and His Word. So biblical knowledge is supposed to lead to godly godly living. Remember verse 12 of chapter 2. It trains us. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. See, from the very beginning, Paul is saying, this is my whole calling. It's to bring the message. It's to, to be about faith for God's people. It's to be about knowledge that leads to godliness. Grace produces godliness. He's wanting to say that from the beginning. Hey, new churches in Crete. You got the message, you believe in Jesus, it's going to make a difference in everybody's life, is what he's saying. And that's a, that's a message we need in our culture. That's a message I personally need. It's a message you need. But we need that message in our culture, that the grace of God makes a difference. Paul spends his life so that people will experience this. This is what he's living for. And he also does it, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. So what is his What is the goal of his apostleship? It's to bring faith to God's elect, and it's so that their knowledge of the truth will line up with godly living. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life. That's the reason for his apostleship. The goal of his apostleship is to reach people with truth, which leads to godly living. The, The reason is the hope of eternal life. One One commentator said it this way, the reason behind Paul's calling... And the promise that motivates his mission is eternal life. Eternal life is what drives him. Eternal life is motivating to him. I'm an apostle in the hope of eternal life. Why would a guy like Paul endure all that he endured? For wealth? I don't know. When I read it, I don't think he got a huge paycheck. He he paid his own way, most most of his ministry. But you don't get the sense that he was doing it for the wealth. Did he do it for the comfort? Everything I've read after he's converted, there's not a lot of comfortable moments in Paul's life. Did he do it for the status? Well, actually, he says he turned his back on his status. That he used to have a very high, respectable status among religious people, and now he's a despised guy. So his role didn't create status. Did he do it for the popularity? At one point, Paul says, everybody's deserted me. Even people that he walked with closely in brotherhood, companions at one point in his life later leave him, and he's he's left alone at one point. Why did he do what he did? 
because of the hope of eternal life. Because he is not just serving a social club. He's not just serving a service organization. He's not just propagating an interesting message. He's not just sort of helping people with the spiritual dimension of their lives so that they are able to handle stress better and feel better about themselves. No, what he is doing is eternal in nature. He is bringing the gospel which takes people from eternal death to eternal life. He's bringing the gospel which takes people when they believe it from those who are under God's judgment to those who are free of his judgment and forgiven. This is what he's doing. He's doing it because eternity is at stake. He's doing this because when he goes into Crete and preaches, the people that hear him, eternal life is in the balance. People who are going to hell for eternity are hearing this good news. And those who respond will receive eternal life, will have their sins forgiven, and will be welcomed into a relationship with God. What is the purpose of his apostleship? It's in the hope of eternal life. This is so valuable to live a life that glorifies the Lord, to be about the purposes of God because they are eternal in nature. And God has promised this. That's what he says. Verse 2, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He's saying, look, I'm not here just catering to a special interest group. I'm here with the message of eternal life, that God promised this from eternity past, and God does not lie. You catch the contrast, verse 12? Who are the Cretans? Who does their own prophet say? They're liars. They're all liars. And so Paul takes a prophetic picture of God up against this culture and says, God never lies. And this is what God said, that he's going to give eternal life. He predicted that in the past And now it is happening. Jesus Christ comes to give eternal life. And now through my preaching, which I've been entrusted, the message of the gospel, commanded by God, he says, verse 3, through this message, people are receiving eternal life. Now, listen, you may have a different vocation or call. Well, we all have a different calling than Paul. There's no one doing what he's doing in terms of his office. But as a Christian, we are all servants, as he says, we can identify with him, and we are all equally entrusted with this message, that it be a message of eternal life, that our days may look different, but we still are living in the hope of eternal life. We're still doing what we do because eternity matters. We're still doing what we do for the glory of God. We're still doing what we do so that people who are dying and going to hell may meet Christ where the church is being built because what's happening here in the, uh, by the church, I mean the people, the people are being built for something eternal, the worship of God. We're being built together as disciples of Christ, following the risen Savior who is eternal. And there is nothing more important than this. This is what we have to offer people. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord, you're not sure what I'm talking about, you're unclear, then the message to you is there is great hope. There's eternal life that's offered to you by Jesus Christ. He gave his life for your sins. He died for our sins. He was buried and he raised on the third day. And whoever will believe in him as Savior, whoever will trust him alone, transfer your trust from yourself and your good works to him, he will receive you. The Bible says, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast him away. He will receive you. Everyone is welcome to come to Christ and believe today. And so if you haven't believed, this is... Well, this isn't just some historical guy talking about stuff, Paul. He gave himself to what really mattered. He was taken to heaven and saw heaven. He encountered Jesus personally, and it so gripped him that he lived his life to tell this message. And we tell you this message today, too, that there's eternal life for those who will respond. He addresses Titus next, who joins him in this pursuit, to Titus, my true child, <coughs> in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Titus is Paul's child. What does that mean? Well, not literally. He's, Paul's not his dad. But it means probably that Paul led him to faith, that, that Titus was converted through Paul's preaching. 
or his testimony. That's probably what it means. Titus was a Gentile. We don't know a lot about Titus. He's not talked about a lot, but the few things we know about him in the Bible, I think this guy, he's probably underappreciated. I think this guy was significant because we know he was given some significant responsibilities. First of all, he delivered, uh, we know in the Bible, he delivered a difficult letter to the Corinthians. Now, we studied a little bit of the Corinthians, and I, I, he liked them. He, he voluntarily was among them. I think if I was delivering a letter from Paul, uh, you know, I would probably probably drop it at the door and knock and run uh, to the because I would not want to hang around the Corinthians and see what they had to say. But it, Paul sent him to the Corinthians, and actually he went once with his own initiative. He was not unfamiliar with controversy, so he was the delegate to the Corinthians. Also, uh, the Bible tells us in Galatians that he went to uh, Jerusalem with Paul. He was a Gentile, and all the a number of the of a group called Judaizers wanted Titus as an adult man to be circumcised because Jews were required to be circumcised, and he did not do it. Paul did not require it. He said you do not have to have those Jewish practices to be a Christian, and so he was one who was who uh, did not give in to the Judaizers, but stood his ground and said, "I'm free." In Christ, by believing him, I'm free from the Old Testament uh, ceremonial law and its practices. And now he's tasked with, okay, you are to go city to city among the liars, the evil beasts, and the lazy gluttons, and appoint, establish elders. So Paul left him uh, in a wild place to organize the church, get the church going, lay a foundation, bring the leaders together in a most difficult place. Help them understand the grace of God on their life. Help the ladies know how to relate to each other. Help the men know how to relate to each other. That's what he is called to do. And he closes with this typical greeting that's typical in in the other New Testament letters. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace comes from God. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace means that God has favor on his children, even though we deserve his judgment. He has favor on us. Grace means that we were orphans and now we've been adopted by the Father and we're his children. Grace means that he floods us with his love, that he welcomes us. We're welcome to his throne, not as those to be judged, but to a throne of grace. God invites us into his presence. We're, we're given access to God. We're given communion with God through the Holy Spirit. We're given knowledge of God. We're given relationship with God. We're given status before God. We're united with Christ. And because of grace, God treats us as he treats his own son, Jesus Actually, he treated Jesus according to our sins and treats us according to Jesus' righteousness. We have grace and we have peace from God. Grace is necessary for, there be, to be, for us to have peace. We have peace from God, we have peace with God, and we have peace with one another. And so it's important that these churches that Titus is helping to establish and bring order to understand grace. Grace and peace to you, Titus, in your ministry, and grace and peace to those who are a part of these churches. These churches in Crete needed grace. I mean, man, they are new believers, and they are in a, uh, you know, talk about problems in your family of origin. They all had them. They're in a messed up culture. And they're going to need a lot of grace. So Paul says, Titus, grace to you. You know, we need a lot of grace too, don't we? I need a lot of grace. The truth is that none of us will experience lasting change without grace. Grace produces godliness. Our lives are changed by God's grace. Now, this will land on different people in different ways. Here's, Here's... the big, one of the big lessons of my whole life that I've learned in the last year is that we all can hear things differently. We all can hear things differently. It's something I'm learning and something I'm wanting to, to be able to serve people and love them better by understanding how we hear things. And when I say grace produces godliness, which this book is going to say over and over, there are folks in the room who will hear that differently. Some will hear it this way. Some will, uh, or here's how some rather probably should hear it. Some need to hear it this way. Grace produces godliness. 
Why do some people need to hear it that way? Because some of us in the room have a lack of concern about godliness. Some of us in the room have a dulled conscience. Some of us in the room are drifting from God and His Word and His holiness. And so when we hear the grace of God, verse 11, when we, the grace of God you know, leads to an upright and godly lives in the present age, we need to really hear, am I living an upright and godly life? See, there are some in the room who your tendency is to take advantage of grace, to presume upon grace, to say it's no big deal if I compromise here and there. And after a few compromises, it becomes so easy to compromise more and more and more. And you're drifting, and the Lord wants to wake you up and say to you like he's saying to the people in Crete, just because you prayed a prayer and believed in Jesus, just because you walked with him closely at one time, you need to realize that grace produces godliness. And if there's not a desire for godliness, if there's not a heart for godliness, if there's not a movement towards godliness, if it's not there at all, then you should question whether you've even tasted grace. There are some people that this book will cause that kind of wake-up call to and say, if there's no heart for godliness, if there's no desire, if there's no pursuit, if there's no concern, if there's no interest in true godliness pleasing the Lord with your life, then check and see if grace has ever entered your heart. Check. Make your calling and election sure, the the Scripture would say. So that's some of us. Grace produces godliness. We need to hear the godliness part and say, Lord, if I'm not concerned about godliness, grant me a heart of repentance that I turn back to you. So some of us need to hear that, and I pray it will be a wake-up call to us today. God graciously extends forgiveness to us and he'll put you back on the right track give you new mercies you can repent and get back on track today as a believer there's another group of people in the room and this is how you need to hear this grace produces godliness grace produces godliness so you're the person you're concerned about godliness you care about godliness you want to be godly but you're failing Unlike the other I described, it matters to you. It matters to you, and actually you see the lack of godliness in your life, and you're aware of failure. You're aware of discouragement. You're overly aware of your sin. You're stuck. You feel like there's no life change. You look at the godliness factor. The other person maybe not looking at godliness. You look at godliness. You read these passages, and you say, oh, I'm not measuring up. Oh, I want to do that better. You come on Sunday and it's, you feel like it's a heaping conviction every time any commandment is read. You're aware that you've failed in that area. You feel a gnawing sense that God's just displeased with you. Very different than the other person. And so what you need to hear is grace produces godliness. You need to realize that life change will come as you look up and stop looking within. You need to take your gaze off of yourself and you need to look at Jesus and what he's done and what, how he views you. You need to be secure in your identity as a child of the Father, welcomed by the love of God, drawn to him, cared for by him, secure by him, that he sings over you today and that his empty tomb announces to you there is power for life change and it comes by grace. There are some in the room who need to look in and say, do I even care about godliness? And then look back up. There are others of us in the room that just need to be looking up because you're so aware of your failure in godliness, but you're not aware of God's grace to you. Listen to that second group of people. God is at work more than you even know. He's at work in you more than you know. And I think he wants you to hear this today, that he loves you and he is actively changing you and he is willing and able. He wants you to look to him and trust in his resurrection power and the Holy Spirit to change you. So some of us need accent on godliness. Some of us need accent on grace. All of us need to be aware that the grace of God produces godliness in his people, and that's going to be a concern in this book. 
that's going to be a concern in this book and in this culture. It's a hopeful concern. What a great proposition that God's changing us, that God wants to change us, that there's power to be different than I am today and to realize that I'm way different than I used to be by God's grace. Grace and peace from God the Father. These churches need peace. You're going to find out there's some people that are so divisive in these new churches that Paul's going to tell Titus, have nothing to do with them. We're going to get to that. He's going to actually say, resist and reject and have no interaction with these people because they're teaching false doctrine and they're living a false way. So they're divisive. They are given to foolish, uh, one, later in chapter 3, they're given to foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels that are unprofitable and worthless. They're giving themselves to worthless quarrels. Man, they are at each other. These churches need peace. We need peace. We're just like them. We need grace. We need peace. Peace only comes through grace. See, when we see that we are right with God totally by what he's done, when we see we're accepted by God totally by what he's done, when we see we deserve judgment but we've received favor because of what he's done, the ground is level for all of us. There's not a person in the room that on their own has a better status with God than anybody else. We are all desperate for grace. We are all recipients of grace. We are all welcomed by grace. And when we get that, when we identify ourselves that way, then we can begin to have peace with one another. See, I can prefer you over myself only when I see what God has done for me and how he's changed me and how he relates to me. Uh, then I can consider others better than myself. Only then. Only then can I see my own sin. Only then can I see the lavish forgiveness that God showers on me. And only then can I turn to you and share with you the same love that God showered on me. The same forgiveness that God showered on me. The same kindness that God's given to me. I can give that to you, you can give that to me, and we can walk in peace. We can walk in peace through differences. We can be reconciled over offenses, you and I, and you and you and everybody else. We can be reconciled over offenses. We can be joined back together. There is hope for every relationship, every marriage, every parent and child relationship. There is hope in God. Because of grace, there can be peace. And so that's how he opens this up. He's not just saying, grace and peace, sincerely yours. Yo, Paul. He's not just some kind of casual way of saying, hey, Titus. When he says grace, he means it. When he says peace, he means it. And Paul, Titus, you better grab a hold of that grace. You better be gripped by that grace when you walk into the elder appointing fiasco and all the opinions that are going to go on about that. He's going to need a lot of grace. He's going to need a lot of peace. And God provides it. God provides it. It's good news. Looking forward to jumping into this. God is going to change us by His grace because His grace trains us to live a certain way. The knowledge of Him accords or leads to Godliness. Grace produces Godliness. Grace Church, I pray that we're aptly named, that we freely receive what He's done, and that we apply it been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.